0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
0: Sunday, August 28th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Primary season is wrapping up as we move closer to November midterms and predictions of a big red wave are growing a bit smaller now.
1: A lot of people were referring to this enormous red wave that was coming. Experience tells us that that kind of language that far out often turns out to be not necessarily correct.
2: I'm Ryan Schmelz. One year after the war in Afghanistan officially came to an end with a chaotic withdrawal, how has the region changed? How is the U.S. keeping us safe from possible terrorist threats in the region? And what is the legacy of how America's longest war came to an end?
3: We face a greater threat from Afghanistan today than we have ever faced ever in our history.
2: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
0: As primary season winds down, things are looking not quite as solid for Republicans as we look ahead to November midterms. The Fox News power rankings last week show the GOP is still going to have a good night in the House, but with fewer predicted wins. In July, Fox News estimated Republicans winning enough seats to have a 22-seat majority. This past week, the new estimate is a 16-seat majority some fox news polling out of wisconsin and arizona spells trouble for republicans as well incumbent senator ron johnson was behind the democratic challenger lieutenant governor mandela barnes by four points in arizona the trump-backed blake masters was behind incumbent democratic senator mark kelly by eight points last week senate minority leader mitch mcconnell was asked his midterm thoughts probably
3: a greater likelihood of the house than the senate senate races are just different they're statewide uh, Candidate quality has a lot to do with
0: the outcome. That was at a Northern Kentucky Chamber of Commerce luncheon. But one critical thing happened this summer, after which polls started to show more engaged Democratic voters, and that was the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe. The ruling moved decisions about abortion laws back to the states.
1: I do not believe that this will have a negative impact on us at the, at, the, at the polls, to be honest with you.
0: South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott told Fox News anchor Martha McCallum on the story.
1: I hope we, we, we maintain common sense and keep our focus on the American people and not on November as it relates to this very important issue.
0: And it remains to be seen what role it will play. In the Fox News poll out of Wisconsin, for example, inflation was still the top voting issue, but abortion was second. In the Fox News poll for Arizona, it was third behind inflation which was tied with border security and only four points behind those top two. Meanwhile Democratic voters made some choices this past Tuesday that may reveal more about their mood. In Florida's governor's primary they went with former Republican governor turned Democratic congressman Charlie Crist over the more progressive Nikki Freed.
1: They want a governor who cares about them to solve real problems, who preserves our freedom, not a bully who divides us and takes our freedom away.
0: Crist will run against incumbent Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in the fall.
1: You know, it's always a little bit tricky to analyze where the midterms are headed. Fox
0: News anchor Martha McCallum.
1: In the last week of summer in August, right before Labor Day, but of course it doesn't stop us from from trying i think that you're going to see the focus uh change a lot after labor day but i do think there are a few things that we're kind of noticing that have been happening really over the past month or so and in many ways i think you can trace some of it back to the supreme court decision on roe v wade so what was looking like a huge red wave and i remember thinking you know months ago back when um the minority leader of the house, Kevin McCarthy, was talking about this tsunami. And a lot of people were referring to this enormous red wave that was coming. Um, Experience tells us that that kind of language that far out often turns Mm -hmm. out to be not necessarily correct. So I I think what we're seeing is is a tightening in this. And I think that the abortion question is a big one that will have some impact in some places. We saw that uh, New York 19 race this week that I think was an interesting indicator. And I think that um, it's it's sort of caused a lot of eyebrows to raise on mm-hmm. the Republican side of the ledger about how to approach uh, that issue moving forward.
0: Martha, talk to me about the 19th, because heading into Tuesday, all the, the analysts and the pundits were like, oh, let's look for tea leaves out of this. It's one of New York's, mm-hmm. I guess, most swingy districts. Um, but some other analysts said, wait, before you put too much stock in this, let's just remember this. It's just a four month hold. Right. Um, and then after right. that, the district lines have changed anyway. And the Democrat in, in this 18th, in the 19th, he's actually running in the 18th beyond November. So when Speaker Pelosi says, Ooh, look at look at what happened in District 19, the, the Democrat won,' Republicans should be afraid. How how afraid and is that how much stock do you think should have gone into this?
1: Well, you know, I think for all the reasons that you stated, it's just sort of one little data point that you look at. Right. Um, But we also look at what happened in Kansas, where the referendum was one of the first opportunities that we saw for voters to go to the polls and let their feelings be known about Roe v. Wade. And what we saw there is that they wanted to keep the restrictions that were in place, which allowed um, for uh, abortions to be. Taking place in in the state of Kansas, so right. which I think is interesting because it, that's an isolated. So that's almost sort of the interesting barometer, right? When you have referendums, you're having a vote on that specific issue, uh, and I think you're going to see in some of these cases, especially in a place like Kansas, where you might see some people vote in referendum, but then you might see them pick a Republican candidate yeah. uh, for for Congress or for um, you know for their house seat or for there's not a Senate race there this time around. But um, so I, I think that you can't ignore New York 19. You know, the same could be said about Maya Flores in Texas, uh, which was also a special election in which a lot of people said could easily turn back around. But I, I think there is something to pay attention to in both of those races. And I think they are two of the things that we're probably going to be talking about all the way up to the midterms and after, and that's the changing Hispanic vote in America, uh, which is an increasingly conservative group. It's not uh, majority conservative, but for, for, my, you know, entire period covering politics, Hispanics have been a very reliable Democrat vote. And, yeah. and I think one of the most significant things that's changing is watching that. And I think the Maya Flores special election is significant. I think New York 19 is also a, a data point that's worth paying attention to as well, regardless of the fact that some things could could change some of those factors. And it is a, a late August, not a lot of turnout in that New York race, but it's still something to, to pay attention to, I think, for both sides.
0: Martha, this past Tuesday, we also saw Democrats go in a couple of cases with, like, I guess, more moderate candidates, right? They went with Sean Patrick Maloney for a congressional district over a progressive. And in Florida, Charlie Crist won the Democratic nomination for governor over the more progressive candidate. Um, Others, you know, say, wait a second, name recognition is kind of an important talking point here if you want to go down that road. Either way, though, we do have some results in some high profile cases where the more moderate Democrat won. Do we make anything out of that? Or is it, again, interesting data points right now, but wait, like, hold on.
1: Well, I think you're right that name recognition uh, makes a difference. But you also have people turning out in primary races who are you know, interested in watching elections. Mm. So, um, you know, they're, they're making that active choice to go and vote in a primary which is you know something that only the most committed voters generally do so my guess is that they've they've looked at both of these candidates and that the name recognition certainly helps but i also think that it's an indication that in those races um they're concerned about some of the progressive um candidates out there they want to pick winners So and I think it's also something to pay attention to in the discussion that's going on about the candidate quality in some of the Senate races um, for those who have been backed by President Trump, which is going to be a huge test of his ability, even though he has done extraordinarily well in terms of how his endorsements have fared in the primaries. The real test is going to be in the general. And uh, that's going to be one of the big storylines to watch as well. But it's that question of, you know, uh, of a candidate who can who can likely win that may be causing them to lean more towards moderates. Um, And you look at the contrast that you see in in the Senate races in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona, and that's another really interesting thing to watch in all these races.
0: Let's talk about the Fox News power rankings. Um, GOP still forecast to have a pretty good night, but less so, which is in Mm -hmm. line with our conversation. But in in that light, uh, when when we talk about the overturning of, of Roe, um, and enthusiasm on, on both sides. Um, I read something interesting. It, it might be more speculative rather than data driven right now, but does the overturning of Roe possibly lessen or weaken Republican enthusiasm? Like if this is now settled okay back to the states, is that no longer this big driving factor for some or many Republicans?
1: Well, you know, I, I think one of the one of the problems is that, The issue hasn't been articulated well by Republicans. And I think that people who are opposed to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is not the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not the banning of abortion across the country. It's the decision that it was not a constitutional um, decision to be made, that it was wrongly decided in the first place, which which, you know, decades of justices have discussed, including justices who are more liberal in many of their decisions, like Rick Bader Ginsburg, have questioned that. So I I think that the biggest issue and the reason that you're seeing, I I think that Republicans are losing the articulation debate on this issue. Hmm. And I think they need to sort of think about that if they want, if they don't want this issue to get away from them, they have to, you know, talk about you know, 12 weeks, 15 week issues. They have to talk about the fact that some states in this country have the most lenient abortion laws in, in the world. Um, and I think that they sort of have glossed over it. I think they ignored how big a story it is um, and how much of an impact it may have with particularly some, you know, suburban women voters who might have been inclined to make a different choice than, than the Democrat choice based on inflation and crime and other factors um, but we have a poll that shows 21 percent say that abortion is important enough to them to vote on it as a single issue vote and we haven't seen that in decades so um i think i think that it's really an issue of how they're how they're discussing it at a failure to get a, well, certain points across in terms of making it a fair argument
0: as you know, last week Republicans got some tough news about some of those Senate races that you referenced, even some governor's races. The the Fox News polling showed incumbent Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin behind the Democratic challenger. As you noted, the Republican challenger in Arizona is behind the Democrat there, incumbent Mark Kelly. Um, we're seeing reports about Senate Democrats out Senate Republicans, and uh, some really uh, double digit polling out of Pennsylvania showing Dr. Oz really struggling against John Fetterman. When when you look when you drill down in that Fox News data on um, on Ron Johnson's race, for instance, in Wisconsin, the independents and the moderates are overwhelmingly for the Democratic candidate. Is that a Ron Johnson issue or is that something bigger along the lines with what we with what we've been talking about? Maybe Roe or maybe uh, Senate uh, candidate quality.
1: It, you know, it. it... It may be a Ron Johnson issue. I mean, Senate races are different because they're statewide. Um, And I think, you know, he has had a, um, you know, it's been very outspoken uh, on a lot of Trump related issues. And that may be working against him to some extent with some of those moderate independent voters in Wisconsin. Um, I think that, you know, the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is a compelling candidate in Wisconsin, I think that's going to be a very interesting race to watch. You know, the idea of candidate quality is just a huge question mark right now. So we watched these primary races happen. We saw President Trump, former President Trump, come out really backing some controversial candidates, Herschel Walker and um, Blake Masters in Arizona. We saw him come out in favor of Dr. Oz over David McCormick, who a lot of a lot of Trump um, people who worked in the Trump administration were actively yeah. working on his behalf. So um, I just, I think, you know, if it turns out that those people lose those races, that's going to be the conversation on midterm mm-hmm. election night. You know, what's the impact on President Trump here? Because so far he's ridden this this wave really well in terms of these picks through the primaries. But, you know, if if they, if, you know, McConnell and Trump and the differences that they've had over these candidates end up leaving the Senate or even in a situation where you see Democrats increasing their majority in the Senate, um, that will be seen as an enormous failure on on the side of of Republicans. So uh, it's too early to say. And I noticed recently in some of the polls that like the Georgia race is tightening up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, some of this is going to get a lot more interesting in the weeks to come. And it is too early to say at this point. But um, that that's a major benchmark to watch because one of them is right, one of them is wrong between McConnell and Trump on these candidates. And uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see. It's going to be a big story.
0: Martha, to that point briefly, just to uh, wrap it up, um, Mitch McConnell did say that candidate quality matters here. And mm-hmm. former President Trump said those, you know, why are republican senators allowing broken down hack politician mcconnell to openly disparage these candidates this this infighting it it can't help in november
1: no it really can't and um i think that you know those are it it would it's interesting right when you have a, a soft sounding phrase like candidate quality or you have some people referring to them as new candidates, you know, candidates who have not been tested before, who haven't run. But those are fighting words. Um those are fighting words to the former president. Yep. And they are putting him in a spot where if these people lose, they're gonna blame him. And maybe, um, you know, maybe they'll see that as sort of a, a tool to sort of hold him back. Because look, this it's an extraordinary story. The story of, of Donald Trump is, is one of the most extraordinary political stories that I think any of us has ever witnessed. And so mm-hmm. now he, here he is so trying to rise from the ashes and prove that he still has hold over the party, that he still is the, the kingmaker um, for these candidates. He's managed to wrestle out of office eight of the 10 people who voted to impeach him from his own party. And, uh, you know, this is what makes covering this a incredibly (laughs) dynamic, historic situation. So it's going to be fascinating to watch.
0: Fascinating is the word. Martha McCallum, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be with you again. Take care.
2: This week marked one year since the United States military completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. And earlier this month, the U.S. announced the killing of al-Qaeda's terrorist leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of the last living plotters of 9-11, who is being harbored by the Taliban in the capital city of Kabul. Americans are wondering how the U.S. plans to keep citizens safe from future terror threats.
3: I think the concern that that we always had was that al-Qaeda was not eliminated in Afghanistan and that coupled with the fact that the Taliban was strong and able to now take over the country again has put our country, the United States, at great risk.
2: Daniel Hoffman is a former station chief and senior executive clandestine services officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, and he spent a significant amount of time in the Middle East.
3: We know one thing from 9-11 is that don't give our terrorist enemies sanctuary, ungoverned space, to plot and plan against us. And that strike against al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman al zawahri as momentous as it was, only demonstrated that al-Qaeda enjoys total freedom of movement all the way to what, by, again, Afghanistan standards here, to the elite section of Kabul. And that has to be a concern to us, because we can't get to the same level of resolution on those threats for ISIS and al-Qaeda that are growing in Afghanistan since we're not there. And we lost our best ally in the region, the government of Afghanistan, their intelligence service, their special operations military uh, who fought and in many cases died on behalf of their country and ours to eliminate those terrorist threats before they are visited on our shores. I am extremely concerned about that threat. It is, there's a lot of threats out there, but that's the one with the shortest fuse that we have to be concerned about.
2: And so, so piggybacking off that, you know, how is the US operating and launching counterterrorism now that there isn't a military presence in that country specifically?
3: Well, it all starts with sources, human sources who tell us where uh, the Al Qaeda operatives are, who they are, what their plans are. And it's really hard to run those sources when you don't have an embassy in the country and you don't have the kind of freedom of movement that we used to have. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan, And it's very tricky for us to get in there and do that sort of work. I can only imagine the challenges that my former colleagues at CIA now face. And look, our our generals uh, all argued against the withdrawal. They all argued that we could have kept 2,500 troops there, kept Bagram Air Force Base, maintained a level of uh, connectivity in the country that would have allowed the government of Afghanistan to continue to function. The problem over the years, in my estimation at least, is that We allowed a lot of other things to creep into the mission. We went there to kill al-Qaeda, to kill bin Laden and and eliminate those terrorist threats. And it morphed into nation building. And, you know, I'm all about helping out, you know, uh, minorities and women and other things. But that's not why we went there. And I think we were distracted in a way. And uh, the mission became much too great for our country, sadly, because we face a greater threat from Afghanistan today than we have ever faced ever in our history.
2: So for you, what was it like watching that evacuation almost a year ago?
3: Well, the, the the two things that really struck me first was that that the administration chose to leave against the advice, guidance uh, of those of the generals and the intelligence community. You all argued that there was this false sort of portrayal of our of our options in, in Afghanistan, either massive amounts of troops, nation building or just leave. There was a middle ground with very few troops there. We had. Far fewer troops in, you know, in in South Korea, for example, or in Germany, or in Kuwait, you know. Uh, so the fir- first, the fact that the decision was made that we negotiated with the Taliban. This is the same Taliban. They're no different today than they were uh, in the nineties, except that now they're they're smarter, they're more uh, they're more sophisticated, they're better armed, and you know, you, we just couldn't trust the Taliban to abide by any of the Doha agreements. So that's the first thing that, that concerned me. And the second thing was the withdrawal itself, which was so chaotic and breaks your heart over the number of, of Afghans, uh, our allies who were unable to get out over our own uh, military, 13 of them who were killed in that strike, you know, at the at the airport, the suicide attack, you know, it was just a, a, an extraordinarily chaotic withdrawal that in and of itself is, is kind of a, a catastrophe for us. But it also makes the United States on the world stage Uh, look vulnerable. And and that's exactly what our enemies are going to play to, like Russia uh, and China, especially not to mention Iran uh, and others.
2: Uh, How strong is the Taliban right now compared to when the U.S. first entered the country decades ago?
3: I mean, they're far stronger because they fought and they won an insurgency. So they picked up a lot of support along the way. They really aren't facing right now any any counter forces. There's a small group in the Panjshir, the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud was killed in, in, um, on September 9. He was the leader of, of the resistance to the Taliban. Before 9-11, his son is now leading the effort, but they're not getting any support from, from anybody outside of Afghanistan. So the Taliban is pretty well in control. But the problem is that they're an insurgent force. Uh, they don't have the desire or the capability to really go full force at ISIS And they are aligned. They are partners with al-Qaeda. The very powerful Haqqani network uh, has long been an ally of al-Qaeda. And their leader, Siraj Din Haqqani, is the minister of interior in the Taliban government. And it was Siraj Din Haqqani who procured that apartment safe house, not so safe, but a safe house where Zawahiri and his family were living when that strike took place. So uh, the Taliban is far more dangerous today than they've ever been.
2: Fox News reported this week from the U.S. Commission on Internal Religious Freedom uh, talking about how harshly the Taliban has cracked down on all forms of religion outside of the one that they've been pushing and even reinstated a ministry of propagation of virtue. You know, since many Afghans have experienced what freedom could be like and some were able to get educations past what they were able to before, do you think there are resistance efforts in that country that could be a threat to the Taliban or is that? not substantial enough to be a threat.
3: No, there's no no evidence whatsoever that, that there's any indigenous capability to counter the Taliban. And all of those, that extremist view of Islam is what aligns the Taliban with the terrorists. And so if you grow up in Taliban-governed Afghanistan, uh, you're more likely to potentially join one of those terrorist groups and let's remember that afghanistan is a humanitarian catastrophe uh and the taliban is nowhere capable of governing their country and they're not going to get any support uh from anywhere outside of afghanistan especially after they allowed zawahiri to have uh to enjoy sanctuary in their capital city so look it's it's kind of we kind of left behind a terrorist state we did leave behind a terrorist state and i kind of think we failed to follow the hippocratic oath of of doing no harm at least to the situation at hand we made it a lot worse yes for for afghans we made it a lot worse uh, who are now having to live under this this uh, barbaric regime but we made it a lot of, a lot worse for our allies in the region look pakistan is a nuclear armed state kind of teetering on 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 massive political civil unrest and The Pakistani Taliban, the Taliban inside Afghanistan focused on Pakistan. They have the Pakistani government and the Pakistani nuclear program in their crosshairs. And that's another threat that we face, not to mention the fact that they will all be coming for us here in the United States. And I just feel like this is a poison pill, a ticking time bomb, so to speak, that that we've got out there. And our intelligence community, you know, this administration wanted to pivot to China and deal with other things. We're going to have to spend more money, more resources, more people, because we don't have the capability that we used to have in Afghanistan to track those threats. But we've got to do it. And we know we have to do it. And it's just a lot harder and it's a lot more risky.
2: And you kind of just just touched on a little bit on the next question here. You know, what can the United States do and what needs to be done from here?
3: Well, I think we need to work with our partners, although there aren't very many of them in the region, but there are some uh, with whom we can work. Uh, that's the first step. The second step is for us to think about uh, working more closely uh, with the resistance to the Taliban, which we're reportedly not doing. And the State Department publicly has said we're not doing it. And the third thing is, you know, somehow we've got to go in there and collect intelligence. but We've got to be honest about it. And I would like to see the Congress. Uh, hold hearings and and bring in the director of national intelligence at real haynes and director cia burns and ask those questions they were asked before we withdrew and director burns said yeah this will have a major impact on our ability to collect intelligence okay now it's been over a year tell us how bad it is Uh, and don't tell me that we have this over the horizon capability that's a wonderfully sounding pleasant phrase but there's no such thing as over the horizon you can't see over the horizon Uh, That strike uh, against Zawahiri, that was over. That was above him. That was not over the horizon. That was in the horizon. We saw him. We tracked him like a sniper and uh, and took the shot. But, you know, I'd like to that question that you ask is a good one. It's got to be posed uh, to the Biden administration. What's your plan now? Uh, How are you going to keep our nation safe?
2: And, and and as we speak, uh, President Joe Biden, as we start to wrap things up here, you know, what what do you think of the political fallout that's happened uh, one year later? And what kind of do you think the legacy of the withdrawal will be on American history?
3: So I don't think we've paid a price for it yet. You know, obviously, there haven't been attacks on U.S. persons and installations in the region and here at home. But that Taliban victory for sure has a value to the terrorists as a recruitment tool that the Taliban can show. Their, uh, their recruits that, hey, look, we, we went toe to toe with the United States and we defeated the United States in insurgency. And that's a powerful recruiting tool. Again, I feel like when history is written, and look, it may take 15, 20 years from now, who knows, unless we change course and find a way to deal with, with Afghanistan, it's not going to be kind uh, to this decision. And, and let's be clear, this decision to withdraw was one that, that the Trump administration, the Obama administration favored it as well. It's a question, though, of just how we do it. And I'll hold the Biden administration accountable for not challenging their own assumptions and the assumptions of others and maybe swiveling in in a better direction to keep our nation safe. Barring something unforeseen, we're going to pay the price down the road. And we'll look at this decision last year as a seminal moment, which put us in the crosshairs of the terrorists. and, And it was needlessly done so.
2: And when the secretary of state kind of put some blame on the Trump administration saying that, you know, they did not inherit a plan, is, is that a justifiable criticism or is that an excuse?
3: I, you know, the Doha agreement was not uh, a good agreement. We released a bunch of guys that, you know, negotiated that. Uh, Barader was one of them. He's a very, you know, he's a, a killer, a Taliban ruthless killer. And, and the agreement itself was not a good deal for us. Uh, and the Trump administration withdrew a great number of our forces but at the end of the day president biden was the guy who was responsible for that final that decision to uh withdraw the remainder of our forces and do it in the way that he did so he's going to bear the brunt of the responsibility at this point you know i'm honestly less concerned about blaming politicians who are no longer in office uh let's you know let's go back over what we did but now let's find a solution and let's try to see what we can do to improve our situation there because our nation depends upon it, and I'd like to see some bipartisan consensus and reality. Let's not see the world uh, as we wish it looked and be more honest, intellectually honest, and see it as it is. And I think that's what, what you know, we all should be holding this administration, the Biden administration, accountable for doing that, for calling out the threats as they exist. And, of course, politically, that's, that's not good for them. But for our country, uh, it's a necessity because if you don't call out the threats for what they are, you're not going to have the resources to deal with them.
2: All right. And as we wrap things up here, is there anything uh, we missed that you want to add?
3: I'll just add this point. You know, things are so awfully interconnected. So successor is probably Saif al-Adil, who is currently in Iran right now. And we're on the kind of the precipice here of of negotiating a new nuclear deal with the Iranians. And I would just encourage all our listeners to think about the ramifications of that deal, which in and of itself is not going to deal with Iran's state sponsorship of terrorism or their ballistic missile program. And it's got the continued sunset clauses, it looks like, on their nuclear program. But if that deal is made, uh, Iran will be able to evade the sanctions. Uh, They won't be there anymore. And they'll be able to import Russian oil and give Russia an economic lifeline. And they've been harboring al-Qaeda. So the next leader of al-Qaeda is going to come from that very country with which we are going to sign this nuclear deal. This is, I mean, it's a wickedly complex challenge for our national security. Uh, But again, those are issues, I think, that are going to come up in the near term. Iran is providing Russia with drones to fight in Ukraine. All of this very interconnected and uh, very challenging. But I hope that we can get some bipartisan consensus where Democrats and Republicans can come together and solve these problems.
2: Daniel Hoffman, thank you very much for your time. And that'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we continue to follow the latest of the 2022 primary elections, and we're expected to have more insight into what led the FBI to raid the property of former President Trump. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan Schmelz from Washington.